And we're back. We're back with episode three. And this time, of course, it's just me. Uh, I hope you all listened to the last episode, episode two, with Marcus from the More Comics Than a Motherfucker podcast. I had a great time talking to him. Uh, he gave me some homework on that episode, which we will be uh, covering later on uh, in our third segment. And uh, frankly, wasn't super thrilled about doing it. Um, always happy to take these requests. I mean, that's kind of part of the show. We expose each other to new things, and uh, I get to try something new and hopefully turn somebody on to something that was pretty cool. I uh, got to scare the crap out of him with uh, some Pig Destroyer. Mission accomplished. Always happy to do it. Uh, but now he has convinced me to go back and listen to a bunch of thrash and new wave of British heavy metal, because that's kind of where I think that story has to begin. Uh, had some interesting revelations. But anyway, we'll get back into it. Um, we're going to start off, as always, with segment one. Uh, on these solo episodes, the talking about these albums that sort of shaped me and my taste in some way. Um... Now, these choices, uh, I actually think, are particularly personal because I can kind of remember um, the, the weight that they carried when I first listened to them. Uh, and I'm sure that it was kind of that way for a lot of people, given the times that they came out and given the, the scenes that they represented, um, real or perceived. These are really pivotal albums, um, and I didn't really think about it until just now that it really isn't just me that, you know, these albums touched and, and changed as far as my, my direction, my trajectory as a fan, uh, as a listener of music, uh, but it really changed kind of the paradigm, and, you know, I guess we may as well jump right into it with number one, kind of serendipitous that I was, I had this one planned before Marcus uh, let me know about his request for me to do some research, uh, and that is Rain and Blood by Slayer. Uh, classic album, of course. Uh, I think everybody's heard that opening riff at some point. Uh, if they haven't, you need to do that. Just pause the show. First of all, why are you listening to the show? Like, if you haven't heard Rain and Blood then I'm not entirely sure why you would be listening to this. Maybe you just like me. You're a friend of mine, family member who found out about it. I don't know. Either way, you should listen to it. Uh, because when I did for the first time, I must have been a teenager, like early teens, and just now able to really get it by my parents when I was listening to this kind of stuff. Uh, I grew up in a, a fairly religious home, uh, Southern Baptist, you know, out in the country, we would travel to the, the local church that was tiny, but to us was just like bustling because, you know, my nearest neighbors were cattle and not people. So going to church was always a major social event. Uh, and that really had a big part in my childhood and, and sort of shaping my morality uh, at the time. And still, you know, I don't consider myself a religious person, but those days stick with me. Um, and perhaps because of that religious upbringing, I think Slayer represented a very, very serious departure uh, for me, uh, both musically and, and maybe personally. I don't know. I don't think that they were responsible for anything, but I think that I found them at just the right time to start branching out beyond what I was given to play with morally. Because, um, man, this album is, is harsh. Um, 
it's not really uncommon to think of thrash and slayer in particular as this sort of transgressive sort of music i mean some of it feels kind of tame nowadays i mean you go back to the mid 80s and a lot of those thrash bands they sound like extremely tame and sometimes even cheesy but uh, slayer doesn't Slayer doesn't. Slayer hits a little bit deeper even now. I mean, you can say that they're sort of cartoonish. That's fine. You'd be accurate. You could say that there have been people who come along afterward who were shooting for a similar uh, feel, a similar ideal, that did it better. Probably be right. Um, an album came out the year after this called Scream Bloody Gore by Death, and I think that they did pretty much what Slayer was trying to do. You could argue they did it better. But there was just something represented by this album, and it really became a touchstone uh, as a moment where metal really not only hit a new peak in terms of just quality, because it's a great album, fantastic album, but also in just the sort of depths of the, the depravity that they're willing to describe in these songs. You know, before them, you had bands... Um, like in the new wave of British heavy metal that I'll be talking about later. I mean, they already existed where they were talking about the devil and, you know, violence and all this kind of stuff. But this one, I mean, for God's sake, they wrote the the opening track, Angel of Death, about, uh, you know, Dr. Mengele, the the Nazi scientist who experimented on, uh, on quote-unquote, undesirables uh, in the name of the Reich, which is pretty pretty tough stuff <laughs> um, it came with some some serious controversy as you can imagine uh, but the whole album is just begging for controversy and when I was a kid I sensed that you know um, there was an air that preceded it uh, the album artwork is daunting um, when it opens it, it opens immediately just ripping into you and when I heard that you know I don't know where we were. We must have been at some sort of antique fair uh, of all places. <laughs> and I was hiding out in the car away from my mom so I could sneak it into my CD player and listen to it in the car. And uh, there's something I felt, it felt obscene, you know? Uh, and I guess that's the theme of all of these albums that I'm talking about on a personal level. You know, when I talk about it changed me and my taste, what I really mean is that I felt like I was getting away with something when I started to listen to these albums. Uh, and I think Slayer, Rain and Blood, I mean, I talked about on the first episode listening to Linkin Park and my parents banning it from the household. But I think Slayer was the first time where I listened to a band and I was like, man, I really cannot let my parents find out that I'm listening to this. This was the equivalent of me sneaking into an R-rated movie. Um, and, you know, just to, I guess we'll keep it moving chronologically, but, you know, the next point in my life where that happened was when I listened to uh, Slipknot's debut album, which is the number two selection I picked for the day. Uh, Slipknot was a band that actually had uh, some cachet in my home already. Uh, my parents made the mistake of warning me to never listen to them which is the, the surefire way to make sure a kid is going to listen to something. Um, you know, they, they always talked about them, these freaks, you know, look at them with their masks and this music. It's not even real music. It's just noise. you got to stay away from that, you know. And I don't know what they were scared of in retrospect. I always think it's funny uh, looking back and, and imagining, you know, if that were my kid, 
listening to something like that, I'd probably just think it's goofy, you know? Because really, when you break it down, it's kind of like turning the lights on uh, at a haunted house where it's like, well, wait a second, it was just a guy in a rubber mask the whole time. And I think the real magic of those early Slipknot records is that they kind of make you forget that they're just guys wearing rubber masks, uh, even for a minute. You know, it's sort of the old pro wrestling mystique, you know. We all know that this is an act. We all know that you're putting it on. But if you make me doubt it just a little bit and just just the slightest way make me doubt it, then I'm impressed. And you listen to this album and I can listen to it now with a similar feeling of awe and and like I'm stepping into a dirty, like grimy theater to watch some grindhouse movie like you just get this feeling like something is really really gross here uh <laughs> and i think that they do a great job in making it uh not a gimmick you know the masks and everything it obviously is a gimmick but between that and the harsh industrial noise and the samples and having three percussionists again all things that are gimmicks but it when you add them up and you do it thoughtfully and you do it in a way that is backed by some actual decent songwriting uh, like you get on the first half of the album and you really don't get on the second half of the album um, but still you can make a pretty great album out of it and it's still heavy as hell I'm sorry but Spit It Out Wait and Bleed those are two anthems man like I remember being a kid and watching VH1 because I didn't grow up with MTV. I grew up with VH1 and uh, they would play the the video of Wait and Bleed and it was always like some voiceover like you would have somebody talking about the song while the song's playing in the background but I would record it just so I could hear parts of the song uh, and I would pray that my parents would not click that clip by accident on the DVR and find out what I was listening to because I was just wrapped up in it. I really was. Um, even though I was too young to have been there in the first like wave of new metal, uh, new metal stuck around and it really, uh, it really touched a lot of, you know, people coming into their, their teens because that, that feeling of angst and that feeling of loneliness, um, and that feeling that nobody around you, can really quite put a finger on exactly what's going on in your head, even if they have some idea because they've been through it before. Your unique circumstances they can't understand uh, that sort of void between people. I think that that's where new metal actually does have some value, and I think that Slipknot hit that better than anybody. Um, and now on to my third and last, yes, last, I'm actually cutting my lists short. One, I don't want to run out of albums, just to be honest, just being upfront. Um, but two, I'd rather spend more time talking about uh, the topics that my guests give me. I, I feel like that's a lot more fun and valuable. Um, but the last one is another one that I, I feel like I was getting away with, right? And that is Ashes of the Wake by Lamb of God. Lamb of God's weird, right? Like, they're just a really weird band. Um, they came about at this point in time where... New metal was still there, but it wasn't new anymore. Uh, there wasn't really that same level of excitement, if there ever was any around it. And a lot of metal was happening at the time that was really interesting and really fun, but there was just no attention paid to it. 
And uh, I think a lot of that was burbling up through the underground. We're going to talk about an essential album later on that came out before this one uh, that is hailed as a classic, but it was not mainstream yet. And this album actually, maybe not mainstream, but it was hot enough to get a song on Guitar Hero. And if you were at a song on Guitar Hero, I really wanted to know about your band. So when I was a kid, of course, banned from a lot of this kind of music, scary, it's maybe even demonic. I don't know if my parents went that far, but it was definitely in that vein. Um, but one of the things that was really, really transgressive was having those vocals that went beyond singing, right? Slayer was pushing it for me, but really the first time where I heard a band that went full-throated into the growled slash shouted slash shrieked vocals, whatever, because uh, Randy hits all three of those in this album, but that was really my first foray into that world was was through ashes of the wake and really it was again guitar hero which is such a funny way to think about it that that a video game brought me to this music that i think is so important but it's true um and i think it's an important touchstone you know not just for me but i think that it was a weird fascinating moment in in metal's development and i think i want to get into this I, i'm not sure how to go go about it i might need some some help i might need somebody to walk through it with me but i feel like the the 90s and the early 2000s was a really messy time for metal i i don't think it was just new metal you know um because i think new metal was kind of taking all the attention while there was all this stuff coming underground that was just kind of weird because nothing really fully fit and this album doesn't really fully fit anywhere um it's not thrash it's not death metal it's not middle core it's just weird really it just sounds like straight up metal i guess and that's really the only way you can describe it. Like Pantera, but turned up a little bit. I'm not really sure how else to say. But it's worth listening to, um, not only because it's just kind of a weird oddball sitting between multiple genres. It's not just because it comes along chronologically in a time that I think is very interesting, uh, where there was a lot of experimentation going on. Um, but also, if you're into just hearing you know, really high levels of instrumentation. I mean, this band, whether you like their actual music or not, were absolutely, are absolutely fantastic at what they do. Everything's on point. Drumming, bass playing, guitar playing, vocals, all of it, absolutely phenomenal. phenomenal. I mean, they were operating like a machine at this point in time. And I'm gonna throw it out there, argue with me, get mad at me, by all means, let it let it let it rip. But I think Randy Blythe is one of the all-time great vocalists, and I think he's in rare form on this album. So, again, not maybe the best album, maybe not the most interesting in terms of the songs or anything like that. Although I do think it's interesting hearing a tough guy, you know, a bunch of white dudes singing about how much they hate the Iraq war in, what was this, like 2005? Uh, I don't feel like you got a lot of that out of the tough guy, you know, shaved head white dudes at that time. So a little weird in that way, uh, but welcomed, obviously. 
because uh, fuck George Bush. But anyway, uh, we're going to move on to section two now. Uh, we're going to be talking about some essential listens. And uh, to go ahead and get it started, we're going to go back to the well, uh, back to one of my all-time favorites. We've already talked about two of their albums, uh, and I'm sure we're probably going to talk about all six of their first six albums, because I don't think they have a bad one in that run. In fact, I think they're all great, truly great, all-time great. Uh, and then, of course, three albums after that, they would have another classic uh, that I know for a fact I'm going to be talking about in the future. But the essential listen for the day is Black Sabbath's Volume 4, which probably should have been known as Black Sabbath and the Mountain of Cocaine. Um, because, boy, goddamn, does this sound like cocaine. Uh, not only because they're explicitly singing about it, but you can just feel the energy here. You can feel the band kind of coming to the brink here. They're pushing themselves to the absolute edge. Um, and I, somehow, some way, they managed to make it work. They kept the train on the tracks somehow. Um, and I'm really glad because, my God, did they give us some great music afterwards. And my God, was this album fantastic. Just throwing it out there, Super Knot, greatest riff of all time. Greatest riff of all time, Super Knot, from this album bank on it. Don't even argue. You know it's true. Um, but, uh, you know, that this album, a lot of people say it might be their best. I'm not sure. But I will say it sounds like the one where they really matured into figuring out who they were as a band. Uh, when we talked about Paranoid and we talked about the self-titled album uh, on the previous episode, we talked about the self-titled. Um, we kind of pointed out how weird it was, how it was such a mess that they were kind of doing a little bit of everything all at once and it wasn't fully baked yet it was just sort of a a bunch of parts thrown together and they somehow made an album out of it this was the one that i think they fully nailed like this is who we are this is what we sound like and really a lot of ozzy stuff and of course uh the rest of black sabbath stuff without ozzy uh, I think sounds closer to this than it does with anything that came before, for better or worse. Um, so really, I think this is essential because one, it's just a fantastic album. I think Ozzy is maybe at his best as a vocalist on this one. Um, but I think it's important to listen to because this, to me, was the moment where Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne figured out what they wanted to do as artists. Uh, and they figured out fully, we are Black Sabbath. We are not just this uh, bunch of parts thrown together. Uh, we are a, an actual, our own thing. Um, and now to move to one that doesn't fit anywhere. Uh, and is a bit of a hard shift from the previous one. I kind of wanted to get all over the place with this uh, with these essentials, because I know who our guest next week is going to be, and I know he's got a lot to say uh, about pretty much all metal, uh, so I kind of wanted to pick his brain about uh, quite a few different genres and subgenres. Uh, and next, we've got one that kind of defies subgenre, which is Converge's Jane Doe. Uh, again, an oddball. Picking a lot of weird ones here. Not weird in the sense that they're like, off the beaten path, like nobody's ever heard of this, but weird in the sense that I'm not really sure how to place it. 
because the year is 2001. <clears throat> Metalcore is kind of coming into its own, kind of figuring itself out along the East Coast, has not fully matured though. Uh, and certainly not matured to its commercial peak, which came along, I guess, when I was a teenager. And a lot of people say it sucked the most then, and they're probably right. Um, but going back to 2001 and hearing an album like this, it makes you think that this could have been a totally different genre if other bands were actually up to the challenge of following in this album's footsteps. Because... I don't know if we had an album of this sort of ambition, really, until maybe Ironworks by Dillinger Escape Plan. Even then, I don't think they quite got there, um, at least in the core genres. And um, I, I'm sitting thinking about this album, and I've been listening to it over and over again for the past week or two, and I just can't put my finger on what the hell is going on here? Uh, all I know is that it's great. And I do think it's worth noting that Kurt Ballou's guitar playing here really eschews a lot of what would come afterward in metalcore. Um, and I think that it's interesting that the development of metalcore took it down a more traditional power chord riff rather than this sort of freewheeling um, you know, up in the octaves too, it wasn't like they were going from bottom end, you know, playing in drop C power chord, uh, stuff, you know, it was a lot of really, really interesting, intricate guitar playing going on on this album and the vocals, my God, <laughs> uh, nobody could quite compete with what Bannon was doing at the time because Bannon was doing something that really, I think more closely resembled what black metal vocalists were doing where the lyrics were not the point. The point was to take you there. Um, the point was to hammer home the emotional heft of a song rather than the actual words. Uh, I read a really interesting theory that says that, you know, you can actually read the lyrics to these songs um, and they're actually pretty profound and, and pretty touching in a lot of ways. I mean, this is a breakup album. This is metalcore, um, blood on the tracks, if you will. Um, but when it comes out, he doesn't actually read the lyrics. He doesn't actually vocalize the words. Um, and somebody has this theory that basically what he's trying to do is if you're going into a breakup and you plan out all of these words that you're going to say, or you write a letter and you plan out all these words that you want to say, it doesn't come out that way. It just comes out as like a handful of things that you just keep coming back to. And you're basically shrieking it, or you're literally shrieking it like he does on this album. Um, just timeless, timeless. The production quality is is peerless. Um, the music itself sticks out. It is not a product of its time. Um, it's something that I think we're going to be listening to for decades and still going back to it and appreciating it on its own terms in its own way without thinking about when it came out. Um, and now for another oddball based off of the genre, not because we can't place the genre that it falls in. In fact, it's in many ways kind of stereotypical of its genre or I should maybe I should say archetypical of the genre um, 
and that's agoraphobic nosebleeds arc. Um, agoraphobic nosebleed, of course, is a, a fantastic grindcore band. Um, definitely a fan favorite if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, Scott Hull's project, uh, Scott Hull being the guitar player for Pig Destroyer. Uh, and I think Nosebleed was intended to be pushing the boundaries of what Grindcore could really do in terms of its brutality. Um, you know, really trying to take it back to the roots of faster, heavier, less comprehensible, um, more of just this frantic, frantic music. And along the way, he recruited some fantastic musicians, one of which was Cat Katz, um, who I think it's it's sort of a shame that because she works in such niche genres, she's not really going to get ever get recognized the way she should. But she is an absolutely dynamite vocalist. Um, you know, one of Grindcore's best, one of Doom's best, because this album takes her back to her roots as a uh, Doom vocalist. She was in a band called Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E, by the way. Um, and they released a, an absolutely brilliant Doom record that is very rare. Uh, I, I've had trouble tracking down a copy. If you happen to find one, please let me know. I'd love to get that on vinyl. It's it's a tremendous album that basically nobody's listened to. But I'm glad Kat made it because that means that she would make this album uh, with the backing of Scott Hull. Uh, Scott writing all of the instrumentation, uh, but very much taking the lead of Cat. And the whole theory behind the, the ARC series, as it was planned to be, was that each band member was going to get to make an album the way they want to make it, right? It could be a genre of their choosing, something they feel more comfortable in, entirely separate from grindcore. Uh, it was going to be their personal pet projects that the whole band had to chip in on. And by the whole band, really, it means Scott Hull. Um, that fell apart. I believe Kat left the band. She felt that they were belittling her. There were some accusations of misogyny, uh, which is depressingly likely. Um, I don't know anybody in that band personally, so I don't want to accuse them of anything, but if you told me a bunch of metal guys were being shitty toward a woman, I mean, I wouldn't be that surprised, you know? Um, but they did give us this album, um, and it is a grueling, grinding listen. Um, it is it is the one of some of the best kind of doom, where it feels painful to listen to. Uh, it was written entirely about Kat's mother passing away from cancer, and the sort of emotions that she felt going through the knowledge that her mother was dying. Um, and it's an angry album. It's a bitter album. Um, it's an embarrassed album. You can feel the shame in some ways. Uh, it's a really profound work, and I, I would highly recommend people listen to it because it isn't just some sort of landmark in the Doom genre. Uh, it got some high praise in the press, but it, I don't think a lot of people listen to it, unfortunately. Um, but it is very much worth a listen to hear somebody just bear their heart uh, on tape, because that's what Kat did on this record, and God bless her for it, because uh, it also brought us one of the best riffs of the past ten years, and that's on the second half of the song Deathbed, which is a fantastic song front to back. Uh, about halfway through there, though, 
I think Scott just decided, hey, why don't we try to sound like Black Sabbath, but with modern production values and a vocalist who can absolutely peel the paint off of a house with her voice. And uh, it just kicks me in the ass every time. Sometimes I'll just put on the album just to skip to that part. I'll be honest with you. Uh, So if you're going to listen to anything, listen to the one song. And if you're going to listen to anything at all, the second half of Deathbed is the way to go. Uh, So those three albums, going to be going over them next week with our guests. Uh, Hopefully going to have some good discussions about them. I doubt that these are going to be surprises. I know for a fact that he's listened to two of these albums, but we'll see about an arc. But now we're going to move on to the third segment, the homework segment. Uh, And we're going to be talking about what Marcus wanted me to talk about. And... He said that he was really interested at the turn of the 80s uh, and how you got metal kind of exploding into a bunch of different subgenres and particularly into thrash becoming the dominant uh, genre of the era, really, uh, the defining genre of the era. And I think that's an interesting topic because I'm not a big thrash guy. Um, you know, there are a few albums here and there uh, that I really, really enjoy. I'm sure I'm going to be talking about them, but really, in my opinion, you could basically just take the first few Megadeth albums, the first few Metallica albums, the first few Slayer albums, and you pretty much got it. You know, I'm not an Anthrax guy. I'm not really an Exodus guy. Um, And really, there's just not that much to listen to with Thrash, in my opinion. The best of it is great, but... It's really great because there's not much else um, that really takes any risks. But it is an important stepping stone. And I guess really what I wanted to get to today was how it was a stepping stone uh, and the sort of broken trail that brought us there. Because I think if you're just getting into the music and you listen to the Hallmark albums, you know, the albums that everybody wants you to listen to, the 101 level stuff, maybe you listen to Paranoid, then maybe you listen to, um, I don't know, some early Iron Maiden, and then you listen to British Steel by Judas Priest, and then the next thing you know, you're listening to Kill Em All by Metallica, and it sounds so different. Uh, it sounds so different because it sounds less mature, uh, it sounds more... Uh, It's got more vitality to it, more blood in its veins. Um, But you really have to wonder, how did we get from something like British Steel, which was still very bluesy, or think about Iron Maiden's, um, you know, um, Number of the Beast, still a fantastic album, by the way. Uh, And you got to think, how did we get from something this theatrical or this bluesy, and then we get down to this stripped-down, in-your-face you know, kick snare, kick snare, kick snare, kick snare, chug, 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 guitar, you know, it sounds like caveman stuff, except they're really good at playing guitars. (laughs) Um, And so, of course, I had to start with the new wave of British heavy metal when I was doing some research for this. Uh, I already mentioned Judas Priest, I already mentioned Iron Maiden, two very important bands for this. I think Maiden probably more so, because you can hear what became sort of the hallmark of thrash having two guitar players one rhythm one lead um a lot of very intricate guitar solos um but also some riffs that 
came off of power chords uh, and worked their way through just a handful of chords. Um, but the big thing there was that chugging guitar playing and the chugging, uh, almost galloping bass lines that you got. And I think really sonically, that's where the DNA is the most strong, is when you hear the string sections of Maiden. Uh, the guitars and the drums and Iron Maiden, you can hear directly, almost copied, really, by those early thrash bands. Um, but I'm not as interested in the sonic evolution, to be frank. I'm more interested in the historical moment of thrash um, and sort of the contingents, uh, contingencies that had to happen all at the same time to give birth to thrash. And I think that, you know, you have to look at punk as really where it all started. Because when you look into these new wave of British heavy metal bands, I thought it was interesting that when they were interviewed, they didn't talk about Black Sabbath all that much. You know, they didn't talk about um, the obvious things. They talked about classic rock. They talked about, you know, Deep Purple and uh, Jimi Hendrix, Clapton, uh, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. They talked about those guys just as much, if not more so, than Tony Iommi. Um, because they were thinking about that, you know, very guitar-centric, um, maybe a little longer, maybe a little more theatrical. Um, not that early Sabbath wasn't, but it wasn't in the way that your Led Zeppelin would be. Uh, and then in the future, your bands like Saxon would be. Um, and they heard that. They heard that they wanted that feeling of um, music that had some actual instrumentation to it, some actual thought into composing the songs itself, but they felt like things were sort of getting a bit bloodless, that people were losing their urgency in music. And that right there is a crossroads um, in all musical development, all artistic development. Uh, I think that you always hit this crossroads where you have to look back and you have to ask yourself, what is important here, right? I think I mentioned this about the early Sabbath stuff where a lot of bands had to look back at this mess and had to ask themselves, like, what do I want to take from this? You know, because you can't do everything that they did. It's impossible. Why would you want to do that for one thing? Uh, but you can't do it. So you have to pick, right? And I think that there were a lot of bands in Britain at the time that had to pick, what was most important about punk? What was most important about classic rock? What was most important about Sabbath? This sort of bridge, you know? Um, and I think that in a lot of these cases, what really tied these bands together was this sort of do-it-yourself mentality, this sort of straightforward mentality that wasn't really worried about uh, anything being on the charts, wasn't worried about anything with a studio, wasn't worried about a contract. Uh, it was just trying to put a shot into the arm of a whole scene. Um, and they were managed to find a way to synthesize the antagonistic punk with the protagonistic uh, heavy metal. Uh, and you got this really interesting stuff. It was very messy. It was very, um, very aggressive, very libidinal, really. Um, 
And I think that right there, that ethos, is really what gave birth to Thrash. Um, and, you know, I think if you really want to get down to it and get a band that perfectly encapsulates it, it's the band that's on the lips of every single extreme metal artist, particularly that came about in the 80s, and that's Venom. Now, here's the thing about Venom, because you have to talk about them. In fact, they're probably going to come up on some of my essential album lists, whether I wanted to or not. Um, Venom is not that good of a band, uh, but Venom is extremely important as a band. So, big distinction there. But their early stuff, you can hear it. Like, Sabbath was this primordial ooze that, you know, every other heavy band sort of, like, came out of that uh, and not quite fully formed mess. Uh, Venom was maybe, in my opinion, probably the second Sabbath in that way, uh, except they weren't as good. Uh, from it, you can hear black metal, you can hear death metal, you can hear thrash, uh, all in the same band. They didn't know what any of that was. They didn't know what they were trying to do, except they were trying to be scary and they were trying to be fast. And in that way, I guess for the time, it kind of worked. Because there's a direct line between Venom and a band like Slayer. It's all in the guitar playing. Kerry King and Jeff Hanneman um, shouted them out as a direct influence uh, for a reason. And that's because it sounds exactly the same. <laughs> Just better. Um, and then I think that you can also point to the fact that the sort of speed wars began with Venom because uh, their whole point was they wanted to be faster and heavier than everything else that speed was more important than anything else and you can hear that on those early Venom records where it sounds like the band is tripping over itself nobody's playing at quite the same time they shouldn't all be playing um, what they're playing at the moment, but they're just trying to make it as fast as possible without being all that considerate about what the rest of the band is doing. Uh, so it kind of sucks to listen to, but if you were a, you know, 12 year old, 13 year old kid getting your hands on an album imported from Britain, or maybe you heard it like on a third hand cassette, uh, I think that you would probably think to yourself that this was the most incredible thing that had ever been created. You know, the pentagram on the cover, some guy's named like Kronos or something is just screeching over a guitar that's, you can't even decipher exactly what notes are being played because it sounds terrible, but it's played really fast. And that's how you got a lot of death metal guitar players. That's how you get a lot of thrash guitar players was hearing that kind of stuff. And that's how speed became the currency, was because of a band like Venom. Um, and that's, I think, one contingent path uh, that the new wave of British heavy metal brought about. Um, that era also brought us things like power metal, later on symphonic metal. Um, it brought us through Venom, black metal, of course. Um, but it was this interesting period, a sort of second wave of opening doors for other bands, opening doors for new developments. Um, and I think that's why it gets to be an era of its own, even though the music sometimes can sound different. Venom doesn't really sound that much like Judas Priest. Um, but 
they have to be in that same group because they hit that moment in history together. And what came afterward really came out of this movement. And you can tie a lot of things back to it. Uh, and that brings us to the early 80s in the Bay Area, a bunch of kids hearing tape from tape traders, seeing these imported records, uh, and really getting it in their head that what's the important thing here? It's speed. Um, that was, of course, the question on the minds of every developing musician is what's the important thing? And for some reason, something was in the water in the Bay Area and they decided it was speed. And so from there, you had tape traders egging each other on to push the boundaries. Motorhead came out with songs that had uh, double bass drums. You know, you had uh, dueling guitar, but from Judas Priest and Maiden, you did vocals and the spirit of hardcore punk. And all of this stuff sort of melded into its own thing. Uh, and there's really no straight line to it. Because again, there were a lot of contingencies in history that had to happen all at the same time. Hardcore punk had to develop along the East Coast. Um, Motorhead had to develop on their own little weird way, um, almost as a separate entity. Uh, you had to have people take that classic rock sound, beef it up with metal, and feel the urgency of punk, which also had to happen uh, in order to get here. Uh, and I'm not saying this to tie this whole thing in a knot. What I'm trying to say is that there is no straight line. Uh, and there never is a straight line when you're trying to get to a new subgenre, uh, and you're never really going to be able to trace uh, a straight line through history, no matter what you're talking about. So, metal from the 80s um, to the present, maybe less so before, um, has been marked by competition. And really, I think that's the enduring legacy of Thrash, is the sense of competition. And that became their own contribution uh, to future developments, you know? You had this sense of urgency and this sense of um, pace and vitality uh, and the sort of do-it-yourself, uh, hard-headed ethos from the eras before, and that gave us Thrash. And then Thrash gave us competition, and Thrash gave us speed. Uh, and because of that, Thrash couldn't last. Um, there's been a bit of a renaissance over the past 10 years or so of bands that decided that Thrash was cool again and they were going to start making music that sounded like something that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would want to listen to. Um, but it just couldn't last. And the reason it couldn't last is because that the whole point behind it was the point that Venom had tried to make in their late 70s, which is that speed is everything. Well, what happens when you reach the point where you can't go any faster? You know, what do you do when you have um, Tornado of Souls by Megadeth? What do you do when you have Raining Blood by Slayer? You know, what do you do when you have um, Disposable Heroes by Metallica? they're kind of hitting the point where you can't really play any faster. Um, and from there, you lose steam. And that's why a lot of these thrash bands either fell apart entirely or started going off in weird tangents musically. Slayer put out a new metal album. That was weird. Uh, Metallica decided that they wanted to be a, a top of the Billboard charts kind of band. Not really weird, but it sucked. 
Um, I'm not going to be one of those contrarians that say that it's good. But it lost that potency uh, because they burned themselves out. And it's, it's worth noting that a lot of these bands formed when they were teenagers, hearing this crazy stuff for the first time, hearing this miasma of music coming out, and deciding and picking and choosing from that, that, as I've said, this sort of primordial ooze, and they found the one thing that they thought was important, and they thought it was speed. And as a teenager, that's cool. But as it goes on, it starts to lose a little bit of its potency. Um, so that's my sort of long-winded way of tracing the path of thrash, and it had to be messy, it had to be uh, kind of an all-over-the-place discussion, because as I discovered from researching this stuff, it was messy. It was not a straight line. I always thought that it was as simple as, you know, some kids in England had listened to Black Sabbath, and then you know, a few years later, they put out the first Iron Maiden album, or Judas Priest decides, hey, that metal stuff's cool, we're going to start playing like that, you know, or Tigers of Pantone, they start playing that kind of stuff. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. As with all things in history, it takes a lot of contingencies to all come together at the same time, in the long run, to produce a synthesis. Uh, and that all, that synthesis opens up a contradictions of its own. Um, and then, of course, those contradictions will resolve themselves into a new synthesis. And in order to work backwards, you got to wade through a whole lot of stuff, and you got to wonder how it's connected. Um, but it's connected in some weird and wonderful ways, man. It's it's really it was really fun looking back on this and going off on these weird tangents and finding all of these bands that again, had influences that I never would have guessed. Um, but that's it. That's what I got. Um, hopefully it was somewhat comprehensible. I'm sure it really wasn't super comprehensible, but that's kind of the point. Um, history is messy. Uh, if you're applying a dialectical method to history, um, you're going to have to go pretty far and wide, but it's important to do that. Uh, so that's going to be it for today. Uh, I wanted to sort of give a, a quick preview. Our next guest uh, is going to come on. He has threatened me that he might make me listen to some terrible albums, uh, but I think he has turned around and decided that they're actually going to be good albums. Um, and I'm glad because I actually have been listening to them, and they are damn good. Uh, so I'll let him introduce himself on our next show. Um, just know that this is an extremely knowledgeable person, so I will be learning quite a bit. Um, and I, I think we'll be talking about some really fantastic music. So, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, feel free to hit me up at Lake Dragging on Twitter. You can also email me. Uh, it's the same thing, lakedragginggmail.com. Um, and I'd be happy to have any conversation with you about it. So... Have a good night, and I will see you next week.